Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we're going to speculate a little bit about how the federal budget process might play out in the coming months, particularly with regard to this question of a big infrastructure package. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tory Gorman and Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson will join me for that discussion. But first, we'll take a longer look into the budget and the economic future with one of the nation's top experts on that subject, Eugene Sturley of the Urban Institute. Gene is an Institute Fellow and the Richard B. Fisher Chair at the Urban Institute. Among past positions, he was Deputy Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Department of the Treasury for tax analysis in 1987 through 89. He was President of the National Tax Association co-director of the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, uh, chair of the 1999 Technical Panel Advising Social Security on its Methods and Assumptions, and chair of the 2015 to 16 National Academy of Sciences Committee on Advancing the Power of Economic Evidence to Inform Investments in Children, Youth, and Families. Between 1984 and 86, he was the economic coordinator and original organizer of the Treasury's tax reform efforts. Uh, Gene is the author or co-author of 18 books, including my favorite, Dead Men Ruling. Uh, but uh, he's also written on, uh, on other uh, subjects. And we'll get to him a little bit about that, uh, the, the uh, theory behind that uh, title, Dead Men Ruling. Um, because it's relevant to what we'll be talking about today. Gene, welcome back to Facing the Future. Well, it's an honor to be with you again, Bob. Glad to be well, here. Well, um, uh, we, uh, we certainly live in interesting times uh, budgetary-wise, and we've been talking a lot about the president's budget uh, on this program. Uh, and today I wanted to take sort of a longer look, a longer-term look, both at the budget and the economy, how the budget affects the economy. And before we get into looking at how the Biden budget attempts to deal with that uh, and what your opinions are uh, of the challenges there, uh, I wanted to get your take first on just the, the lay of the land. I mean, where, where are we starting from uh, as, as we consider the Biden budget? Well, the, the complication with the Biden budget is a complication with our budget process in general. So our budget process mainly focuses on changes. Now, that's that's normally a reasonable way of budgeting. You want to look at incremental changes over time uh, and uh, and deal with them, you know, whether it's the president proposing or Congress enacting those changes. 
the complication in our budget is that so much is already built into the budget. That is, change is built in. This is particularly in the areas like retirement and health, where there's automatic growth at rates faster than GDP and at unsustainable rates. And uh, dealing with that is a tougher political issue because if you think that's current law and that making an unsustainable rate of growth sustainable takes money away from people, you've got a tough political uh, issue to deal with. And uh, that's, that's sort of the lay of the land that we had even before President Biden came in. Now, what President Biden's about uh, are basically three uh, things, I, at least in my view. One is he really believes he has to appeal to the public because he views us in the midst of an existential crisis. <clears throat> you don't have to agree with it, but I think the attack on the Capitol, other issues like that, you know, he's very much afraid that we need to have some way of coming together uh, and, uh, and not allowing that to happen again. And in that sense, it fits in with my prior comments. I think he's afraid to ask the public for much of anything, including dealing with this growth in, 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 in programs that are, that are unsustainable, which, which he has not put into the budget. That's issue one. Uh, issue two is I think he really and, and probably is succeeding uh, in uh, and give Congress some credit, the last Congress, in, in actually uh, forestalling uh, what could have been an extremely serious recession. Uh, and also uh, getting through, uh, in, President Biden also obviously wants to get through the pandemic as fast as he can. So that's obviously the primary current concern if you're talking about today today and this month and, and the, next, the, next, the, next, the next few months. And then the third thing is he really wants to set a longer term agenda. And to some extent, I agree with, what, with a lot of that agenda. Uh, I think he wants to put more resources towards children, uh, towards supporting families that are, uh, that are working and raising children, uh, more money back into education, restoring the basic infrastructure of government. The complication in all this is, is when you get to budget analysis and budget numbers, because the numbers haven't added up for years, even decades, and that's the, the gigantic constraint uh, that the president is facing. And without an ability to ask the public to give up something, something gets promised in the way of low taxes or benefit growth rates or stuff like that, it's very hard to make all of this come together. Yeah, I, I think they're having that now with the uh, just trying to figure out how to finance a, an infrastructure package, uh, regardless of how infrastructure uh, is defined. Um, your work uh, over the years is, has had a lot to do with not just a, a simple imbalance between spending and, and revenues, but, but how that spending is uh, allocated um, between older generations and, and younger generations, uh, often you've been an, an advocate for shifting some priorities uh, <laughs> into to, towards younger generations. Can you look at the budget? Give us a sense a little bit now about the uh, how the priorities how the priorities set now, and do you think that the Biden budget would change that much? So for over a decade now, we've produced at the Urban Institute something called kids share. So among the many budget issues we look at, we look at the share 
of the federal budget uh, and to some extent state and local budgets that goes to children. Uh, and at the federal level, it's, it's been a pretty small number over most of the years. And to the extent you think that investing in children, and I, I don't want to exaggerate that every dollar you give to a, a family with children is, is going to be an investment, to the extent you invest in children, that really get, addresses long-term mobility issues. Uh, I would say also that an item that's really hot on my list of things that we should be working on are wage subsidies, particularly wage subsidies that might increase in a recession so that we don't just offer uh, unemployment compensation as a way to support uh, families, but uh, wage subsidies that might uh, encourage employers to hang on to workers and workers to work. So those are items that I think we really uh, need in the budget. If When I look at the numbers uh, for, uh, and I've looked now over the last 80 years, ever since we started paying Social Security benefits and uh, went through the, the 60s and, and the reforms, from about 19, the end of World War II to about 1980, we put about 40% across presidents, but we put about 40% of the real growth in federal spending uh, to Social Security and healthcare. And in those years, it was, it was almost all Medicare, a uh, little Medicaid starting in 65. Uh, from 1980 uh, to 2020, we've put 80% to those items. So uh, the, what's getting squeezed out are items like uh, items that might promote mobility, that might deal with issues to children, uh, that might promote greater wealth equality through improvement in pension subsidies and, and say first time home buyers credits, items like this. And so uh, I think what's gotten squeezed out is the investment in the young and in workers. And we see it in a lot of ways. We see it in, in other stories like student debt, uh, it's a complicated story because some of this works to the state level, but it also relates to what the federal, the money the federal government's making available or not making available. We see it in the student debt story. We see it in the wealth distribution. The young share of total wealth is, is dramatically declined, dramatically declined over those last about three or four decades. Uh, we see it in, in, in all of these, these other, other, other stories. And I think we see it in, in the frustration of workers that in a number of areas of the country where they're falling behind, that we don't have adequate supports for them. And I think those items getting squeezed is partly related to what goes on in the rest of the budget. So again, think of the budget as a balance sheet. It's every time I do something over here, it has to have an effect over here to make the numbers bad up. Now it might be, we add debt to make it add up, but, but they, we still, the, number, the numbers have to add up. And, and yes, we paid for some of the stuff by increasing our debt, but we paid for a lot of say what we what we spend on health and retirement by squeezing on this other end. And the squeeze, to be fair, again comes partly by we've cut taxes, particularly on capital income. Uh, so I'm not objecting to uh, keeping taxes on capital income at a reasonable level. I think that's really important. Uh, and I'm certainly not objecting uh, to the great success of Social Security in expanding health insurance uh, coverage and the, the health care that we all get. But they have to be put in proportion to other needs of our society. And I think at the margin now, we need to be paying more attention to the young, to workers, uh, to families that are, that, are, uh, that, are, that are struggling to get by in their, in, their, in their middle years. And I think that's, as I say, I think that's something, uh, I don't think they always does it exactly the right way, but I think that's something that the President Biden is trying to get to. But he so far has not been able to really be able to pay much for it other than some tax increases 
uh, on corporations and the wealthy, which he's proposed and, and may, not even, may, not even, may not even get. When I look at the uh, every year when the long-term economic uh, budget and economic forecast comes out from CBO, um, I'm always struck by the, the way that long-term economic projections are so anemic, uh, basically. And it has to do with, in their statistics, uh, slowing labor force growth and slowing productivity, both of which falling, but particularly on the labor growth side. Are some of these programs that are designed to help with childcare and universal pre-K, um, do you think well-designed to bring more people into the workforce? Uh, and do you think that some of these things would help with productivity? No, no, nobody really knows what helps with productivity, but but looking at the workforce growth piece, are these um, designed to address that problem? So I'm I'm going to give you a caveated answer. I I think most budget choices that we can do well are relative choices. So. You know, as an economist, I'm often engaged in studies on whether some particular program by itself, operating independently, does, does something great for the economy. That's often hard to prove in a, in a uh, $20 trillion uh, plus economy. You know, that, that we put a 10 billion over here or 50 billion over here and, and it changed the dynamics. However, if you think about the budget in a major context, you think about the, the uh, uh, four trillion plus, well, going towards what six trillion uh, of spending in the budget, and you think about what happens if you would allocate a trillion dollars more to something that produces maybe even a modest return, say say three or four percent real, you know, tr you know, a trillion dollars, and that's a trillion dollars every year being invested in something like that in ways that might compound, such as education, uh, over time. Uh, you could actually see that it has some real effects. Does a particular program for providing support for uh, parents who raise their children by itself get you there? I, 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 don't, I don't think we could prove that. However, I could argue that putting money into children's programs certainly is more growth enhancing than giving people more years of retirement. I mean, I think there was a case for, there is a case for supporting people in retirement giving people more years of retirement actually decreases growth. I mean, we know that. Now, maybe there's yeah. a reason to do it, but we know it decreases growth. And, and putting money over here, as I say, and, and for children, probably is more likely to increase growth. So if you do that in the budget where you can deal with the big numbers, you start doing that consistently across the board. And over time, I think you really can, you really can enhance, in, enhance growth. And, and does it matter how it's paid for? I mean, because uh, that, that's the question is, if you're going to do the financing, uh, even if something's good, it, it, can you overwhelm the good by, uh, frankly, deficit financing something? No, I mean, I mean, you have the same issue. I mean, in some sense, I was talking about working at the margins on the spending side and putting your spending where uh, not always where it enhances growth because that we've got other needs in our society that aren't growth enhancing at all. We've got, you know, people with impairments and disabilities uh, where the, it may not, it may or it may not enhance growth, but we want to support them anyway. The same, same, but the same relative choices take place on the tax side. Tax policy 
in and of itself is is a huge part of the budget. You know, if you think about it, it's half the budget because it's the revenue side versus the spending side. But as you well know, Bob, because uh, you work on this all the time, about a, depending on how you measure, it, perhaps a quarter to a third of total subsidies uh, actually are not uh, spending subsidies; they're tax subsidies. And so now you've got that additional allocation problem. So to the extent we do things well, it can make a big difference. Let, let me just give you one minor example. Uh, the home mortgage interest deduction uh, may have at one time supported uh, people owning homes. There's little evidence it does that now. It seems to mainly support people buying larger homes. So it's not helping first time home buyers. It's not helping uh, these young people whose ownership has, has been declining. And it's not helping, say, Blacks who for whom home ownership has, has late, lately just stagnated and is much lower than that of whites for decades, despite progress in other areas. You could take some of that money subsidizing home mortgage interest deduction, spend it on something like a first-time home buyer's credit. The latter would be much more uh, supportive of home ownership by the young and by people who don't own homes, including in some of these uh, uh, minority or people of color communities. Uh, and that would be a good exchange. Now, can I tell you a first time home buyer's credit is gonna you know, solve everything? No, but, but that's making the type of relative choice. And think about it in your household. You know, you're deciding whether you're gonna put spin money on your kid's education or buy a bigger uh, dining room table. Well, at times you will buy the, the <laughs> dining room table, but you're not gonna neglect spending that money on your, on your, on your kid's education. Uh, and that's that's the type of choice you face throughout the budget in every in every in the budget as a whole in every subcomponent of the budget. You know, if we're talking about allocating defense dollars better, better now, a huge portion of the defense budget is going for retirement and extraordinarily rising health costs, which recent chair persons of the joint uh, or chairs of the joint. Uh, 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 chiefs, the joint chiefs of staff. Joint staff have 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 commented on that a lot of our money is now going to pay for retiree health benefits that are growing astronomically rather than for things we need in defense. So all of these choices are extremely important, as I say, not just for enhancing growth, but just for doing things well and giving the public the goods and the services it's entitled to receive. This is Bob Bixby. You're listening to Facing the Future. Uh, I'm talking with Gene Sterley of the Urban Institute about the long-term budget outlook and how President Biden's budget may address some of these issues. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm joined this week by uh, Gene Sterley of the Urban Institute. Gene is one of the top uh, experts in the nation on the budget and the economy and, and also on tax policy and lots of other things. But today we're talking about long-term budget and, uh, and economic policy. And we've been talking about uh, President Biden's budget and how that would play into it. And uh, Gene, when we left off, we were talking about how difficult it is to reallocate things in the federal budget. You wrote a book a few years ago called uh, Dead Men Ruling, uh, which I highly recommend to, to people that want to understand what's going on with the federal budget because well, I'll, I'll let you explain it, but it really makes the, uh, the, the, the point about why shifting priorities is, is so difficult. Right, so I, I think one of the items that I really emphasize out of that book 
was the difference between the type of budget we had a few decades ago and one we have today. And this has to do with something we mentioned briefly earlier. That is, we have some programs that are growing automatically very fast. And in point of fact, not only are they growing automatically very fast, but they now are the dominant parts of the budget. Uh, so they're mainly, again, healthcare and social security, although there's some, some, other, some other items. And again, I want to be very clear, I'm all in favor of, of more universal health care and people getting health care. I think Social Security is probably the most successful program we've uh, 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 probably had as a nation. It's just a question of whether they should preempt all other, uh, all other efforts, uh, including basic functions of, of government support for workers uh, and children. So historically, in the budget process, uh, revenues would grow with the economy. So in fact, if you look at uh, today's budget, just under current law, forget about whether President Biden gets his proposals enacted or not, about a decade from now, there would be another trillion dollars in additional revenues. That's just keeping the current tax structure essentially in place. There'd be about a trillion dollars more annually. That's not just over the course of 10 years. By the 10th year, it'd be a trillion dollars more. And you know, by the 11th year, maybe 1.1 trillion more. But that, that's roughly the, numbers, roughly the numbers we're dealing with. If the growth in the budget is not pre-committed and Congress could allocate that growth as it did throughout most of its history, uh, then there'd be a lot of flexibility for Congress to be able to claim, here are the new things we're providing you. Now they're being provided, not by Congress, they're being provided by you, the taxpayer. But, but that's, that's at the same tax rate anyway. Your, your income grows, you pay a little more in taxes. Now government can do a little more with its share of the income that, that you, the, uh, the worker uh, investor produce. Uh, what has happened over the years is with this automatic growth in other programs is that the growth in spending has increased and increased and increased over the years. So much so now that it now absorbs more than all the growth in spending. So roughly speaking, the latest numbers I run show that of that let's say roughly $1 trillion in revenues that's projected in the future, 1.2 trillion is already committed. And so now think about what this does politically to a politician. So the politicians say, well, I wanna do new things too, just like all my predecessor congresses have done. Uh, let's see, I don't have any of this, any of the revenue growth to spend, it's already pre-committed. So I can raise taxes on people, whoops. That, that doesn't sound like a political winner. Uh, well, I could cut other spending, you know? Well, that's, that's not much of a winner either. Uh, I can maybe, and this is what we've seen, I can maybe if I'm a Republican say, well, I'm gonna attack immigrants and welfare recipients and go after foreign aid, which are puny, either puny recipients of uh, the puny amounts of money that's being received are puny parts of the budget. Uh, are a little larger part of it. If I'm a Democrat, well, I can tax people with making more, more than $400,000 or go after corporations as President Biden suggests. And that's a bigger set of numbers. That's not really popular, but at least it's confined to a minority of, of the people whom I'm asking to give up anything. Well, none of these are really great options for the politician. And a huge amount of this problem therefore derives from just pre-committing what we're gonna do in the future. So much so that it absorbs even the economic the revenue growth that would accompany economic growth. 
And we know this can't, we know this can't be efficient for one very simple reason. We don't know the future. We just don't know the future well enough to know exactly what is going to be the priority in the future. We did not know we were going to have a COVID-19 crisis. We did not know there was going to be a financial meltdown earlier this century. We did not, we don't, but don't anticipate or prepare for the fact that uh, the decline in the birth rate, which at one point was thought to be temporary, was going to be more permanent. And now we have a, an aging of the population due to that decline in the birth rate. So we don't know the future, but we need resources to address those changes in the most efficient and fairest way possible. Yeah, and, and you don't know, um, like you said, if you, if, if you don't know the future, it seems to me best to err on the side of caution a little bit and not uh, over committing or uh, needing perpetually low interest rates or perpetually low inflation in order to, uh, to make your numbers work. That, that it does give me a little bit concerned about the, the president's budget is that it, it overlays a new set of spending commitments, most of which are on autopilot uh, and are partially funded on top of an existing group of partially funded automatic uh, programs. And, um, you know, I worry that, that we're not really thinking about that explicitly. It's almost like taking where we are now and saying, okay, well, this is the problem that we already had. But if we just pay for everything new uh, or come close to it, then we, you know, that's enough. And it, it strikes me that it's not enough because it increases that uncertainty that we have about the future. You may have a lot of good programs, but you don't have a reliable source of funding. Right, right. And, and let's be fair about it. This has been the pattern of both political parties for some time now. So the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, which was the big Republican initiative in the first year of the Trump administration, we didn't pay for either. Although some would argue the tax cuts always pay for themselves. But <laughs> generally speaking, we, 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 didn't, we didn't pay for very much of that either. In the case of President Biden, he actually does suggests that he's going to pay for uh, essentially what is mainly five or six years of spending growth with 12 years of additional revenues. But then he also hints that he doesn't really want that spending, those spending increases to stop. Many of them he wants to be permanent. But uh, so in some sense, he started paying for some of what is going to come up, but not, not, uh, not most of it. There's also, by the way, a uh, and this is a dilemma for Congress. I, I, I try to be fair to President Biden. He's, he's paying for more, a lot more than say even President Trump did. But uh, the uh, uh, other issue is sort of with the macro economy. So there's this issue about how much should we stimulate the economy right now? And let's suppose we've got that figured out perfectly. That still leaves open the issue about, it also sets in motion certain changes in the stimulus, either a cut in the stimulus or an increase three and five and six years down the road. And that might not be the right amount then either because we don't know that future well enough. So those items interact when you, when you cut out the flexibility in the system to adjust, uh, you really create, create a number of problems. And of course, for a long time, we've relied upon monetary policy to come in 
and sort of uh, sweep the fiscal inadequacies under the rug and take care of our problem. But monetary policy is, is in a real bind. You know, it's got real interest rates down, uh, especially after tax real interest rates, if you're borrowing down below zero uh, uh, in real terms. Uh, and uh, it's got this huge uh, buying power that it's using to buy up other assets in the economy so that uh, the valuation of assets don't, don't decline and people can keep uh, holding on to mortgages or investing in mortgage trusts or, or it's got, even gone beyond mortgages to, to buying other bonds. Uh, so it's, it's, it's got limits on what it can do. I should also uh, suggest, and we probably have time to get into it here, but monetary policy and keeping interest rates so low is a major cause of the big bubble burst in wealth valuation that's mainly benefited the wealthy and not the people who don't on, hold on to say things like stock, uh, who, who aren't, getting, who aren't getting, getting those benefits. So the inability to get, have fiscal policy under control and then relying upon monetary policy has just ex exacerbated other, other problems, which to me is another reason why we have to get fiscal policy under some sort of sustainable and controllable uh, mechanism. And I should say, by the way, in that sense, I'm probably, uh, I hate the term hawk, but I'm, I'm more of a long-term hawk than, than even a lot of people I've talked to, because they often talk about, if we just get the rate of growth of debt to be the rate of growth of GDP, we'll be okay. And I keep saying, no, that's not right, because you, you still, if you've pre-committed all those resources in the future, what are you going to do when some new, not just emergency arises, but some new need? Or maybe we just agree as a public in a democratic process, we really want to spend more on something else. Well, one of the things that is uh, a, a, a different phenomenon in that regard is you mentioned the debt to GDP. Um, it's over uh, 100% uh, easily going to be topping uh, World War II levels. And so we're into uncharted territory in terms of what we can tolerate. And, and one of the pushbacks that... Uh, you know, we're getting is that interest rates have been low for, you know, surprisingly low for a long time. Inflation has uh, has remained relatively relatively calm, aside from the uh, blip uh, up that we're seeing now. So there's a debate about inflation now. But people say uh, you probably got this. I've I've certainly got it. You deficit hawks have been worrying about this uh, interest rates for a long time. And we have huge debt and interest rates are not going anywhere. So we, that proves that we can afford to keep borrowing and, and, and borrowing more. Um, uh, there has been a difference in, in long-term interest rates, but it hasn't completely got us out of the woods yet, uh, has it? No, no. I, and actually, uh, Jason Furman, who headed up the Council of Economic Advisors for, for President Obama, is now at Harvard has made the point that uh, even the Congressional Budget Office projections into the future have often overstated uh, the deficit for the primary reason that interest rates kept falling. Uh, and again, I think this is partly due to monetary policy. Again, we don't have time to go into it, but also has to do with the fact that we're getting a lot of, of, of saving from abroad, including from places like China or oligarchs in Russia or wherever else that are, that are looking for a place to park their money. Uh, so those very, very low interest rates and declining interest rates have really helped, uh, helped keep the deficit uh, smaller than it otherwise might have, have, 
have been. But again, I think we, we've hit almost uh, the nadir. It's not clear you can go much below zero. In theory, you can, but it's, it creates a lot, of, a lot of economic problems. And so we've got an asymmetric risk, you know, that uh, the risk is not that interest rates are going to fall much below zero or real after-tax interest rates fall. The risk is that they're, that they're going, to, going to rise in the future. And even if they don't, and, and this is what I keep emphasizing, like with this, what may sound like a more narrow issue of how do we allocate our resources, I think that what has also happened is that it sends extraordinarily bad signals. In the 1970s, I wrote another book called Taxes, Loans, and Inflation. And the short gist of the, book, of, the, of, the, of the book was that stagnation accompanied inflation because we were getting very, very bad financial signals about what to do. So for instance, if I can borrow at a zero or a negative rate, give me some of that money. You know, <laughs> That's it's right. Just, it's not just the feds that can borrow. You know, Wall Street is, is figuring this out as well. These zero, close to zero interest rates are being used by the by by you know uh, people on Wall Street. They're being used by speculators. They're being used by a lot of people to say, "Hey, I want some of that free money, free money too." But they're not necessarily the people who are best at actually allocating our saving and our investment in the in the economy, which are often young, new, entrepreneurial types of people who need access to the markets and don't need to be outbid by even by giants that can in turn borrow at zero rates and, and sort of crush them or buy them out. So I, I think we're getting very bad economic signals. And that goes back to a theme you raised earlier, Bob. I think this, that has that's having a significant impact on our growth rate over time. We're not allocating our capital well either when we send out such bad signals. One example of the of the bad signals that I think a lot of us would identify with is the fact that our young people uh, have no place to really park their money anymore. When I grew up, I learned about finance and about compound interest and about how to save in the returns from saving by owning a passbook saving account uh, with uh, interest rates that are close to zero and with banks not even wanting small uh, depositors. Uh, that lesson uh, isn't being learned. Now that might sound like a small thing, but multiply that up by tens of millions of young people who are not learning uh, learning about it these days, and you got a problem. In fact, one of my grandchildren, his recent request was he wanted a debit card. <laughs> wow. Well, there, there you go. I, uh, I, that, that, that seems to uh, tell us something about uh, signals. Um, Gene, I think we're going to have to leave it there with that. Uh, that's a, a great uh, analogy about uh, how things are moving. Um, that's it for this segment. Uh, this is Bob Bixby, uh, your host. I've been talking with Gene Sterling of the Urban Institute about uh, the long-term budget outlook and economic outlook and how the president's budget might play against that. When we come back, I'm going to be talking to the Concord Coalition's chief uh, economist, Steve Robinson, and policy director, Tori Gorman. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And for this segment, I'm joined by the Concord Coalition's policy director, Tori Gorman, and the Concord Coalition's chief economist, Steve Robinson. Steve and Tori, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thanks for having us, Bob. Well, on this little in-house roundtable, I thought we would uh, 
speculate a little bit about what's going to come up with the uh, the near-term budget, what we used to call the budget process. There, I'm not sure that there's much of a bu budget process left, but there are a couple of things that have to get done. They, they do need to pass appropriations bills or the government shuts down sometime before September 30th. And they're supposed to be starting that process now. Sometime they're going to have to deal with a, a debt limit. But but really what's getting all of the attention right now is whether they can come up with a deal on infrastructure. That's um, something that the president has put forward in his budget and before, and Republicans are interested in engaging. But it's not quite clear that they're actually talking about the same thing. So <laughs> it's kind of hard to assess where negotiations are. Tori, could you sort of walk us through the issues? Sure. So I sort of see three major prongs to this negotiation between uh, the White House and, and Republicans and Democrats in Congress. First is, is spending, how much we're going to spend on infrastructure. Uh, we know that Biden started with a $1.7 trillion proposal and Republicans, Senate Republicans were much lower than that. They've sort of both moved off their positions a little bit. The latest Republican offer was about $978 billion. Biden came down to about $1.2 trillion. And initially, you would think that they're, based on those two numbers, that they're, they're closing in on a deal. And I think what a lot of, of people are missing and what the media isn't reporting is what they're talking about in terms of new spending. Um, the Biden proposal is all new spending above baseline, whereas what the Republicans have put forward is a proposal to spend money that basically repurposes money that's already been uh, uh, already included in the baseline. For example, they would repurpose some unspent coronavirus aid funds and reuse that to spend on transportation, roads, bridges, et cetera. So when you talk about new money for infrastructure investment, there's actually a really big difference. You know, Biden's at 1.2 trillion, but only about $300 billion uh, is considered new money under the Republican proposal. proposal. So they're still really far apart in terms of spending. Um, there's also a big difference in terms of scope. Uh, President Biden really expanded the definition of infrastructure in his proposal. Not only does it include roads, bridges, transit, you know, the, the normal stuff that, that we think of when we think of, of hard infrastructure, he included things like uh, uh, broadband, securing um, our, 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 our networks and our hard infrastructure. He also included uh, human infrastructure, things like home health care and, and other things. Um, and that expanded definition is not sitting well uh, with Republicans. So not only are they negotiating on top line spending numbers, but they're also negotiating on scope. And then beyond that is how to pay for this proposal. Um, the, the two parties are very far apart on how to pay for any kind of, of new spending on, on infrastructure. We all know, we've heard the media has reported that President Biden would like to revisit the 2017 tax cuts and, and ask uh, corporations and high net worth individuals to pay a little bit more uh, to help fund this infrastructure project. That proposal is just a non-starter with Republicans. Um, they, the Republicans have suggested that they might be up for uh, increasing the existing gas tax or considering a new fee, such as a vehicle miles tax. Um, but that sort of steps on the president's proposal to not raise taxes on individuals and households who are earning less than $400,000 a year. So when you look at these three big 
themes, if you will, when it comes to infrastructure, you can see how the, the, the two parties are really far apart and it's hard to see uh, how whether either one of them are gonna be able to move closer towards the middle and come up with a deal that will be a bipartisan deal. So you have to wonder whether or not Democrats eventually are gonna get tired of the, the negotiating game and just move towards uh, a reconciliation style approach where they can pass legislation through the House and the Senate on a single party vote. Well, Steve, let me uh, uh, bring you into this on the economics of it, uh, of, of the infrastructure discussion. I mean, it, you know, people have, are um, interested in it for a number of reasons, I guess. One is uh, the, is sort of a big jobs bill, but, but the other is uh, that infrastructure spending would help the economy. Uh, in the long run. And you wrote an issue brief uh, for us up, it's up on our website about how there is no free lunch here. And um, so while there may be very good reasons to do infrastructure spending, and in, in fact, there are, uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't pay for itself uh, necessarily. Could you kind of walk through some of those uh, issues? Yeah, sure. I mean, th there's the general perception that if you build infrastructure, you know, the classic example is the interstate highway system. So prior to the existence of the interstate highway system, you know, there were all of these local roads that had to connect from point A to point B, and it was, you know, difficult to get across the country and ship goods and services. So we came in, we built the interstate highway system, and obviously that improved the economy because we were able to transport goods and services more efficiently and, and, and less costly. So obviously the first interstate highway system was very productive, but if we were to come along and say, well, gee, let's build another interstate highway system. So, you know, at the margin, adding an additional road of interstate is not nearly as helpful as the first road of interstate. And so there's this sort of disconnect to say, well, if we hire people and they get out with picks and shovels and bulldozers, and we put all these people to work and they build something, you know, that's gonna be useful to the economy. But, you know, it's sort of, where did you start from? And it's, what's the optimal amount of infrastructure? And building the initial infrastructure is highly productive because you, you needed it. But when it comes to adding more infrastructure or alternatively, when it comes to repairing the existing infrastructure, I mean, as a technical matter, you know, what's known as depreci economic depreciation is really not investment. That's simply maintaining the existing infrastructure. So when you fix potholes and repair bridges, while those are useful and necessary expenses to maintain an existing benefit, there's a cost to that. I think that that's a uh, fascinating aspect of the new budget. It's, it's fascinating. It's also fiscally a little bit frightening because when you start saying that we have to do all this stuff and if we do, the economy is going to be great and it's going to pay for itself, then I begin to worry about <laughs> how, how much it's all going to cost and whether or not we're going to just end up deficit financing this whole thing. And I think Steve's paper makes a good point in that when you look at you know traditional infrastructure, you, there's the initial outlays for building whatever you're building. But then you you move towards a maintenance phase, and so you're 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 spending less, but you're still spending, but you're spending less than the initial investment on. When you think of this from a traditional infrastructure perspective, but when you move towards 
investment or infrastructure investment in, in the caring economy, those outlays are going to continue year after year after year after year and grow, right? Because you're, you're talking about employing people uh, to take care of children, for example, and they're going to you know, earn money every year and, and, and inflation will cause wages to rise, et cetera. So it's not like you get this initial bolus of, of investment and then it sort of tails off into to maintenance when you look at investment on the caring economy side. We're going to have to leave it there for this second segment on Facing the Future. Steve, Tori, thank you for joining me. We'll check back and see how all this is playing out once they reach a deal, if they reach a deal on infrastructure. And Tori, we promise to have you back more to talk about how much of this you can do through reconciliation, because I think that's probably where we're going. This is Bob Bixby. You've been listening to Facing the Future, and we'll be back next week with another edition. 